That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. I'm Josh Hammer. Welcome back. We'll be joined shortly by Eric Erickson. He's the host of The Eric Erickson Show on WSB Atlanta and syndicated nationally. Eric is a very, very old friend of mine in this movement, literally one of my oldest contacts here. I think Eric first followed me on Twitter probably back when I had, I kid you not, probably 200 to 250 followers or something like that. So what a treat to finally get Eric Erickson on this program. But before then, we want to talk about some of the breaking news from this past week. And really just over this past weekend, there was just more information that continues to trickle in. I'm talking here, of course, about this classified document scandal. And I do not think scandal is too strong of a word to describe it, which is now coming after Joe Biden. And if you heard the terms classified documents and you thought that the words out of my mouth are going to be Donald Trump, you've probably been sleeping under a mattress or something for the past week or so. I mean, what a world to live in right now where, you know, the two 2020 presidential candidates, one of whom has already declared for 2024, that would be Trump, the other of whom Joe Biden is, at least as of now, currently presumed to declare. What a world where they have both had their own now classified document retention scandals. And they have now both had Merrick Garland assign special counsels to investigate those scandals. I, I, I mean, what does it say, first of all, necessarily about kind of our state of discourse where so many of our, of our leaders, leaders of both parties are under active investigation for, for things of this nature? Now, we discussed the Mar-a-Lago raid last August at great length on this show. It was an unprecedented act by the FBI in executing this pre-dawn raid against the private residence of a former president of the United States. And it is worth bearing in mind that one thing that I emphasized on this show repeatedly at that time was the fact, the truism, that Donald Trump as commander-in-chief under Article 2, Section 1, Clause 1, he has the executive power vested in him and him alone. Now, constitutional law nerds like myself, to be candid, refer to this as so-called unitary executive theory, which is a term that gets totally bastardized by the left. They say it's this big, scary thing. They typically associate it with George W. Bush and Gitmo and the war on terror and all of that. All so-called unitary executive theory means is literally the plain text of the vesting clause of Article 2, Section 1, Clause 1 of the Constitution that says that the executive power is vested in the President of the United States, period, full stop, end of story. What that means, what that means in 
a case that the Supreme Court kind of flushed out in the late 1980s, which another previous guest of this show, Mike Davis, has been going on for months to try to explicate for the viewers of Fox News and other programs what that means in uh, the court kind of detailed this in a case called Department of Navy versus Egan, is that the president has plenary authority, full stop period, end of story, to make any document classification decisions he wants. He can classify, he can declassify, he does not need any kind of statutory authority, he does not need regulatory authority. He can probably write it, jot it down on a piece of paper. He probably, frankly, if you want to test the logical bounds of this, can just think it. He probably actually can just think it. Now, I, I wouldn't recommend that, obviously. If I were a White House counsel, I would say you should at least write this down. The point is that the president has plenary authority under the executive power that is solely vested in him to make classification decisions for sensitive documents. Here is the key point. Here is the key point. And I emphasized this on the Rubin Report last Friday. Another previous guest of the show, Dave Rubin, had me on. I kind of hammered this point home. There is a huge distinction between the president of the United States using the executive power that is solely and exclusively vested in his office to make classified document decisions as opposed to the vice president of the United States, which is what Joe Biden was at the time that these documents went missing. They all went missing in the aftermath, the chaotic finish of the Obama-Biden administration. And at this point, we have now found one tranche of documents in the Penn-Biden Center for Diplomacy and Global Engagement, if I got the, the fancy title correct, this Chinese-funded, glorified money laundering operation there in Washington, D.C. They found some classified documents stored in there. They have found some classified documents stored in Joe Biden's Wilmington, Delaware home in his in his garage next to his shiny Corvette. Uh, don't worry about that, of course, as Joe Biden has reminded the American people, oh, the garage was locked. So apparently now we're going with the locked garage standard for classified document retention. Good luck with that one, buddy. More documents have trickled in as well throughout the Wilmington, Delaware House. Other breaking news, Joe Biden didn't even have a visitor log for his Wilmington, Delaware House. He did not even have a visitor log. So we do not even know who potentially had access, who could have been privy to these classified documents, which we don't know exactly what they maintain. The scuttlebutt, which is what I am hearing as well, is that a lot of these documents, especially the ones at the Penn Biden Center in Washington, D.C., a lot of them apparently pertain to the Iran nuclear deal, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, this horrendous deal that Barack Obama and Joe Biden signed with the world's number one state sponsor of jihadism, the Islamic Republic of Iran. Apparently, a lot of these documents, I am told, pertain to the Iran deal, which, frankly, as horrific as it is, makes a lot of sense because the Biden administration has refused to take off a second JCPOA, a second Iran nuclear deal. They've refused to take it off the table, so it would make a lot of sense that they might want to try to hide some of the sordid details as they kind of gear up for a potentially second round of negotiation here. My biggest takeaway, my biggest takeaway are, my biggest takeaways are twofold. One is, as a political nature, and this is kind of the bottom line conclusion that many others, including Alan Dershowitz, writing an op-ed in Newsweek Opinion, have reached as well. The one obvious conclusion is that this is going to make it much, much harder for Merrick Garland and the Department of Justice to indict President Trump. Now, I, I personally thought that an indictment of, of, of Donald Trump was something of a foregone conclusion. If I had to make a prediction, I predict they probably will still do so on January 6th-related grounds. But 
this does make an indictment pertaining to the classified document retention and that entire affair ultimately culminating in the raid of Mar-a-Lago last August. This makes an indictment pertaining to that extremely, extremely difficult and perhaps outright unlikely for the very simple reason that the American people would rightly cry foul, that this Department of Justice would presumably be indicting President Trump for it, but not President Biden. It is, it is worth bearing in mind that a sitting president cannot be indicted as a matter of constitutional law. There is a DOJ Office of Legal Counsel memo going back, I believe, to the Bush administration in the early 2000s, maybe maybe the Clinton administration, but somewhere along that time, there was an OLC memo that, that concluded as a constitutional law matter, a sitting president cannot be indicted. So, uh, that's my ultimate prediction here is, as far as the political takeaways. I find, I find that this will result in a much lower likelihood of President Trump getting indicted. Also, just what shameless hypocrisy on Joe Biden. What absolute shameless hypocrisy. He has this 60 Minutes interview, and it was, it was in September of last year, a few weeks, maybe a month or so after the raid of Mar-a-Lago, where he had the gall, he had the temerity to go on 60 Minutes and just excoriate, utterly excoriate his predecessor, President Trump. How could he be so irresponsible for retaining classified documents? Well, you know what is irresponsible, sir, Mr. President? You know what is irresponsible? Is your complete lack of self-awareness, your complete lack of apparent knowledge as to what documents are strewn all over your office, your Tony Chinese-funded office in Washington, D.C., those documents that are strewn all throughout your garage in Wilmington, Delaware, that is irresponsible. And you did not, sir, you did not have the constitutional authority to issue those classification decisions like your predecessor did for better or for worse. So we will see how this all unfolds. Like I said, now there are multiple special counsels out and Robert Hur's name, the special counsel who will be investigating President Biden. We will see what ultimately his investigation gets to, but not a good week for Joe Biden coming at a very inopportune time for Joe Biden. It seems to me, and this is what my column was on this past week, it seems to me that there are some deep in the bowels of the law enforcement apparatus, deep in the bowels of the, of the Department of Justice, the intelligence community, who are maybe looking to shove Joe Biden aside. Because why now? Why are we just learning the details of this now when we knew, apparently, we knew about the documents at the Penn Biden Center on November 2nd, before the election? There was a media cover-up. Now the question is, why now? Why, just as Joe Biden is beginning the final two years of his term, the relevant question, of course, to ask is, in a situation like this, qui bono? Who benefits? Well, I'll tell you who benefits. The people who benefit from this are Gavin Newsom and all of those incredibly ambitious Democratic politicians who have Joe Biden's 2024 campaign in their crosshairs. You can connect the dots from there. Let's take it to a quick commercial break, guys. We will be joined on the other side by the great Eric Erickson. Stay with us. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. 
Welcome back. As previously mentioned, what a treat this week to bring on the host of the Eric Erickson Show. It is the man himself, Eric Erickson. One of my oldest contacts, really, in this entire right-wing media world that I have stumbled into a career into. So, Eric, it's long overdue. Thank you so much for joining us this week. Thanks for having me, man. It's always good to talk to you. So, you know, I, let's just kind of just start there at the beginning. I mean, you, I, I probably don't give you thanks enough, but let me do so right now on this show. You, I, 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 without your generosity earlier in my career, this none of this would have ever happened. I mean, I don't even know if you remember, Eric, but you were the one who first gave me my first foray into blogging back at Red State when you read her there. And then, of course, I followed you over to The Resurgent. So I, I, I guess I, at, the, at the risk of sounding slightly self-indulgent, I mean, do you remember those days? And, you know, it, I, I guess it just I like... I actually do. Um, and, and you're to blame for so much hate mail I get. <laughs> <laughs> to this day? Um, all my fault. Now, listen, um, people, you know, the original founders of Red State, people give me credit for founding it, but it's actually Ben Dominich, Mike Krampaski, Josh Trevino. I, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing but for them. Uh, and I mean, all, all of us are are able to trace our careers to other people doing things, which I think is the way it works. Doesn't mean we're not standing on our own two feet, as Elizabeth Warren would say. We didn't build it; we, we did, <laughs> but um, we did have help along the way. No, of course, and you know, just thank you, thank you again. And you know, to this day, Eric, I don't even know if you know this, but um, I think you gave me a courtesy subscription to your Substack at some point a number of years ago. I read your Substack every single day without fail. So you're one of the one of the handful of people that I am very much on top of what you were thinking day in and day out. And just you know, thanks so much for all that you do. So let's dive into the to the current events. So speaking of your Substack, you, I think you were a very very early one of the earliest kind of right of center vocal opponents of Kevin McCarthy's easy ascension to the House Speakership. I think every day on your Substack, every day on air on WSB there in Atlanta, Georgia, where you're based, you were just hammering against Kevin McCarthy's kind of, you know, this conception that he had earned it from the get-go, from rising through the ranks. Walk us through the Kevin McCarthy speaker fight. First of all, why you were so out in front in, in opposing his speaker bid, and then kind of just walk us through that very tumultuous week a couple weeks ago, ultimately culminating in his House Speaker uh, victory, but he was obviously uh, forced to yield a ton of concessions to Chip Roy and his detractors. So we can go back uh, a number of years, and, and we should note first, I think Republicans have this habit of doing it. Um, back in 2000, uh, you had, well, go back further. Um, Bob Dole running against George H.W. Bush in 88 led the way to Bob Dole becoming the nominee in 96. Uh, George W. Bush running in 2000 against McCain led the way to McCain in 2008, led the way to Mitt Romney in 2012. Donald Trump came in as the great disruptor, shattered everything in 2016. Republicans tend to have this pattern that now it's this guy's turn uh, because he's been there so long, he's earned it as opposed to he's done something to deserve it. And that's the way Kevin McCarthy was. You had John Maynard and you had the young guns of Paul Ryan and Kevin McCarthy and uh, and uh, Eric Cantor. Eric Cantor lost. Paul Ryan ascended to the speakership. So McCarthy became the leader. So now it's McCarthy's turn. And, and that's just nonsense the way it should work, in particular because Kevin McCarthy climbed the ladder by being everything to everyone uh, without any sort of principle and any sort of guiding path forward. Say what you will about Paul Ryan, and I've said much. Uh, the man fundamentally understood we, we have a, a future crisis ahead of us financially. Something should happen. He had some level of principle, even as I disagreed with a lot of what he did in his speakership. McCarthy has nothing other than he sticks his finger in the wind. And when you're conservative, 
you have a guy like this, conservatives tend to be the most expendable block of the GOP because they have nowhere to go other than the GOP. So they get taken advantage of and always have been. There was no reason to put this guy in the speakership without extracting enormous concessions from him. And so kudos to Congressman Roy, Congressman Perry uh, and others for recognizing that and willing to have this fight. And so, I mean, early on, I started saying the man does, does not deserve this. He may get it, but he doesn't deserve it. And if he does get it, uh, these are the things conservatives need. And it, it, ultimately, he had to bend to them. They, they held their own. I was surprised enough of them continued to hold up the fight, uh, given the enormous pressure. And then, Josh, as you and I have seen over the years, you had the usual suspects come out and always say, no, we should give leadership whatever they want. We should trust these guys. I mean, going back to the Wall Street Journal, comparing the conservatives to hobbits and the debt ceiling fight right. of 2011-2012. The, the establishment media falls in line behind the leadership and never recognizes that that all of that ultimately led to 2016 and Trump being the, the bull in the China shop. And we're going to head back towards there unless we figure out conservatives should have a meaningful seat at the table. So I got in a conversation at some point over the past couple of weeks, the identity of my interlocutor is escaping me at the moment, but this person I was speaking with basically raised the very obvious point that what does it say about a man in Kevin McCarthy and his inner circle and really just kind of the Republican establishment in general that these quote-unquote concessions that he was forced to quote-unquote yield are as straightforward and prosaic as separate appropriations bills, no more $1.7 trillion lame duck Congress omnibuses. I mean, what does it say, I, I guess just about the hubris of Republican leadership that this had to be negotiated in the first place? I, I mean, why? Wh I guess what I'm asking is, why is it even proper to view these items that should be so obvious from a conservative perspective as being quote-unquote concessions? Yeah, look, it, it absolutely is deeply absurd that they would be considered concessions, particularly because after they concessions were given, all the Republicans were like, "Oh yeah, this is this is good stuff. We right. should be doing this." Um, you've got really you've got to step back. Um, it, it, what is now for a lot of people ancient history it was the period of time I was getting up and going at Red State in two thousand four, two thousand five. The Republicans defied history in two thousand two. They, they increased uh, their majority. They took the Senate back. And by 2006, it was very clear the writing was on the wall after the 2004 election. The, the good ride was coming to an end. What they began to put into place were measures where everything became leadership uh, dictated. And it, so leadership would draft all the legislation and you weren't allowed to amend it. This is the bill we want. You have to pass it. And everyone was expected to fall in line and you were the bad guy. Well, Pelosi railed against all of this, comes in in 2006 and embraces it and not only embraces it, but then she begins to alter the language of being able to oust the speaker. So you actually could oust the speaker, but only members of the of the majority party could put forward the vote. So you fast forward and the Republicans in 2010 take back the House and all the stuff they railed against. Suddenly they embrace all of Nancy Pelosi's reforms and it goes back and forth. And the further we go, we get away from this idea of open legislating. And so what's the role of a congressman now? It's to go on Fox News or MSNBC and parrot your leadership talking points without actually writing legislation yourself. And the conservatives, thankfully, have said this is the flawed process because now leadership, particularly Kevin McCarthy, and that's a key point 
we shouldn't uh, pass over. McCarthy, in his term in leadership, has always governed by crisis. He waits until the last minute, produces a multi-thousand page document and says, the crisis is here. Here's what we must vote for to avoid it, whether it's government shutdown or default on debt. And these conservatives knew they could play him because that's what he'd do with the speaker's vote. He would wait until the very end and say, hey, we can't make this ugly. we got to look like we can govern. You must vote for me. And they said, screw that. Uh, and they got us to go back to the George Bush days of the House of Representatives actually being able to stand up on its own, have members draft legislation, have it be voted on in committee, go to the floor, be amended, debated, and voted on. And the response from leadership is, well, this may make us look bad. And in fact, conservatives, it may hurt you because there are fewer of you than there are moderate Republicans. And to their credit, they're like, we don't care. We want to be able to at least have the debate and make the argument that what we're doing is right. And they won that. And I think that's really important that everyone needs to understand is this may work against the conservatives, but they want the ability to at least be able to make the argument that our ideas are the best. Stop putting forward multi-thousand page pieces of legislation no one can read that are so just full of grift to fund all the causes that people want to get their votes. We should be able to explore this on the floor. And I, that's the way the founders intended it to work. Exactly, exactly. So coming after or coming out of the speaker fight, where do you stand? I mean, are you are you happy with kind of where we are as conservatives, like the, the concessions, whether they should be viewed as concessions or not? You know, uh, what McCarthy has been forced to give. I, the question is less: Do you trust McCarthy? I think you and I both do not trust him. But do you, do you anticipate that he will abide by the terms of this agreement, especially given the single member motion to vacate? Yeah, look, I, I think he has to in large part because. One of his concessions that he did not put in writing, and there had to be a measure of trust on both sides. And by the way, Chip Roy deserves a lot of credit here. He was, by all accounts, on both sides. The only one the McCarthy team really trusted was an honest broker. And so he negotiated the deal, and they put conservatives on the Rules Committee, the Appropriations Committee, and several other committees whereby they can blow up this entire deal if McCarthy backtracks, they can essentially, the conservatives can shut down the process if McCarthy walks away from the deal. So they have enforcement power. That was one of their concerns early on was McCarthy can make all of these promises, but if they couldn't be enforced, uh, there was no reason to negotiate with him. So the, the compromise was putting these guys on the committees that mattered so that they could obstruct, stop and block things if McCarthy walked away. So he really can't without causing himself more pain. No, I agree with you. I, I mean, I think th this this is why the single member motion to vacate is just that crucially important because, you know, I mean, like any kind of deal that is in place without an enforcement mechanism, the purported terms of the deal inevitably kind of collapse into just, you know, you know and being worth the piece of paper that they're written on. So uh, of all these so-called concessions, to me, the single member motion to vacate was a sine qua non of, of the deal in the first place. And, you know, Chip Roy is a mutual friend of, of yours and mine. And, you know, kudos, kudos to you, sir. Kudos to you, Chip, if you're listening to this podcast. You obviously did a really fantastic job. Is one, a fantastic job as one of those lead negotiators against Kevin McCarthy. So, Eric, switching gears a little bit, at the time that you and I hit the hit the record button here on Monday, January sixteenth, there's this hullabaloo that is just breaking wide open on Twitter, where it it appears that someone from the Trump World operation has sent out a a fundraising email 
with the logo of Ron DeSantis's 2022 Florida gubernatorial campaign with the headline, Should I Run for President? So it's difficult for the people who haven't seen this to kind of visualize what I'm talking about here, but it strongly appears that Trump is fundraising off of someone who has not even announced for the 2024 presidential race yet. So I guess, Eric, what are your immediate reactions to this? And where do you think this is going to go from here over the next few days or, or next few weeks? Yeah, I, so my guess is fairly immediately we're going to get a response from the president that he's rebuking and, and pushing back against whichever member of his team came up with this. Uh, it looks very much like he's got a small dollar te- donor team and they're doing this. Um, that being said, it, it's actually kind of telling how Ron DeSantis is starting to live rent-free in the heads of the Trump team, that they would push out with his name, image, likeness, and logo, suggesting it's about him running for president when actually you're raising money for Donald Trump to help him run for president. I mean, it's clever, but it also is bad press for President Trump. Uh, At a time, a lot of Republicans saw that he announced uh, right after the election, and uh, they weren't sure he should do it. He did it anyway. There hasn't been a lot of buzz. Now, apparently, he's going to go do an event in South Carolina at some point soon. His crowds are not what they used to be. This just gives more bad press to the Trump team. It's almost like they've got a DeSantis insider, and they're trying to to scuttle it by using DeSantis' name. I find it very funny, but also I can imagine Donald Trump did not authorize this. And the moment he finds out about it, he's going to be furious. Well, I hope so. I I mean, honestly, for Trump's own sake, I hope so, because if he's not furious about this, then I don't know what is worth getting furious about these days. I mean, for the median observer who sees this, it's exactly what you said it was. I mean, it it, it strongly appears that Ron DeSantis is living rent-free in Donald Trump's head. And we have... We've had any number of indications thus far that that is already the case. I mean, obviously, on the precipice of uh, of Ron DeSantis's 19-point re-election victory in Florida, I think, what was it, three nights before that Tuesday evening? Was that Saturday evening where Trump first referred to him as, quote-unquote, Ron DeSanctimonious? So, you know, there's been any number of data points now. So I don't know. We'll see. But speaking about 2024 more generally here, because, you know, for so many years, Eric, you've been one of my go-to sources for kind of Republican presidential punditry. So I guess I'll just pick your brain for a second here. Do you, as of right now, see any breathing room for any 2024 candidate, whether they've announced or are anticipated to possibly announce other than Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis? Because the the way too early polling right now is looking like it's a two horse race. Yeah, it it does. And I I will I'll tell you, I, I can mention somewhat superficially without going into details. I've been asked uh, to speak to a group of the the senior donors in the party uh, in a month or so about how to deal with this situation. There are some people who on their resume uh, deserve to be considered, whether it is Mike Pence or Mike Pompeo or Nikki Haley, um, a number of others who are considering running a couple of senators. But this very much does strike me as a two-man race. Christy Nome, of course, trying to attack DeSantis on on abortion. I don't know that she's going to get traction in the Dakotas. Uh, People want to run, uh, and they kind of realize this is their their opportunity to run, but Trump is kind of throwing a monkey wrench in it. My my suspicion is that ultimately Trump's going to realize uh, it would be embarrassing for him to go forward, and he'll try to lay hands on a candidate and make that candidate his person. And then if they lose, he can blame them as opposed to himself. 
um, which, which has been his MO in these these midterms of late. I just think that uh, we we can't have a 16-person field this time. And this very much, and I've said this now for two years, this feels to me like 1998. Uh, in 1998, uh, there was this blue state called Texas. And people forget <laughs> it was a blue state, except at the presidential level. Right. Uh, Congress on down, it was very much a, a blue state. And George W. Bush won it, beat Ann Richards in 94 runs again in 98 and the whole state becomes bright red and has been ever since. And at that moment, the conservative base and the conservative donor class all at the same time said, maybe we should bet on this guy in Texas who just took a big blue state off the table. And this feels very much like it. Now, the only difference is that uh, George H.W. Bush, who had lost, uh, wasn't trying to run again against his son. And Trump is trying to run again against DeSantis. At the same time, that to some degree, makes DeSantis a stronger candidate because he's getting it from the left with the media. Their attacks are happening already, and he's getting it from the right, and he can thread a needle in a way that actually helps him with more moderate voters. So the question that some people keep on asking about Governor DeSantis is, is he peaking too early? Is this Scott Walker all over again? We all remember the Scott Walker campaign, the quickly aborted Scott Walker presidential campaign in the 2015-2016 cycle. And, you know, I, I guess I'd be curious for your thoughts on that. I mean, do you worry that Governor Sanders is speaking too early? I mean, just, you know, just so you know, I'm sure you see this on Twitter, too, but I've been pretty unabashed on this particular show of my support for, for the governor. But I, I'm curious if you see any parallels between Scott Walker, 2015, 16, maybe even Jeb Bush, honestly, just the fact that he had so much hype and then obviously his campaign didn't go very far. Are you worried about kind of the peaking too early phenomenon? I'm not, uh, and, and I'm not for a couple of reasons. One is, let's go back to 98 again. People ask the same question about George W. Bush, and what he did in 98 is he consolidated the base and the donors. When you go to Scott Walker's campaign and to Jeb Bush's campaign in 2016, they both were able to consolidate a donor class, but were never able to consolidate the base. Scott Walker never had a level of momentum with the base. He had a level of momentum with very large donors, some of whom lived in Wisconsin, who helped fund his campaign. DeSantis, again, seems more like Bush to my degree, to, to my sense of this, because he's consolidated the level of, of base level support of the people who will actually vote as opposed to just the people who will give him money. I agree with you for what it's worth, and the polling thus far, especially in the aftermath of the disappointing November mid of the disappointing November midterm elections, totally bears this out. Uh, Eric, we're going to take a quick commercial break here, so stay with us. We've got Eric Erickson from WSB Atlanta, Georgia, on with us. Don't go anywhere. Okay, picture this: it's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. So, Eric, I think looming in the backdrop of all of this, all this chatter about 2024, Trump, DeSantis, or do, or do we go back to more of a quote-unquote kind of Bush-style or McCain-style Republican, looming in the backdrop of all of this is 
the earthquake that was Trump's victory in the Republican presidential primaries, which you and I were both blogging vociferously and prolifically about at the time there. And kind of the intellectual backdrop for all of this is kind of the so-called realignment that has been happening as the as the Republican Party becomes a more working class party, more of a more of a blue collar party. And then you've had this concomitant rise of it's, it's, it's not a term that I love. I kind of have a love I kind of have a love hate relationship with it, but the so-called new right. So, you know, I know you pay close attention to this stuff. What what are your thoughts on kind of the the so-called new right, this slightly more populist infused brand of conservatism? And how do you see that playing out over the next couple of years as we approach 2024? You know, so I'm glad you brought this up because you and I have not had a chance to to really talk about this. It's kind of funny. I'm I'm on various email lists with people, Slack channels and stuff, and I get, oh my God, Josh Hammer, did you see what this idiot wrote today? Or <laughs> or so at Amari or or the people at AEI or in it's like everybody hates each other when really they all agree on like 70, 80% of, of everything, just how to proceed, what should be the uh, predominant issue. I'm fascinated with the whole thing in large part because I have friends on every side of this fight and and sides that aren't even a part of it that probably should be. I like them all and I'm intrigued by all of the ideas. And I I'm a little bit hesitant in in some of the pushing for like pro-unionization rhetoric I hear now on the right because um those institutions have been so captured by the left. I, I think we should be very careful about supporting unionization of the country. It'll be used against us. Um at the same time, I think that the old guard GOP chamber of commerce crowd. I've been fighting against it for as long as I've been a political writer. Big business is not the friend of small business is not the friend of small government. Uh, I am a little bit wary about using the, the power of government to get our way because unless you end elections, the left will get that power back and use it. And I do think uh, we're headed in a directory where there are probably more center left people in America than center right. So we have to be a little humble in our approach in a way they don't, but I think that humility helps us. And I'm just, I'm I'm intrigued by the shape of the fight. I have said, gosh, probably for the last 15 years, it's absurd to me that the Republicans continue to run on Ronald Reagan's playbook from 1980 uh, when he is dead and the Soviet Union doesn't exist and the problems we have now are not the problems we have then. So what the solutions are, I don't know that I have all the answers other than I think any Republican anywhere who's opposed to school choice should be run from office. Uh, and we do have to take on critical race theory and, and wokeism and cultural issues. Uh, at the same time, I, I just I was in politics for a very long time. I somehow got myself elected to a local office. I've run campaigns at the federal, state and local level. And I have always come to believe that ultimately economic issues allow us to fight on cultural issues, that as long as people think their 401ks are doing fine, they don't want disruption, but if they feel threatened economically, they're willing to consider cultural fights. And so we can't give up the good fiscal stewardship of the right uh, and just make it about culture. But if we show ourselves to be good fiscal stewards, we can fight as hard as we want on culture and voters will give us a pass. So do you think that Ron DeSantis in many ways kind of embodies that? Because many of his positions on kind of your standard bearer kind of fiscal issues you know, are, are kind of Tea Party era Republican. I, I, I don't want to paint with too broad of a brush, but, you know, Governor DeSantis, of course, doesn't 
support high taxation, doesn't support kind of over-regulation of businesses, but at the same time, he has been willing to prudentially wield power to kind of, uh, how should I say this, to kind of, I, 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 I guess I'll just use the provocative phrasing that I use sometimes, which is to kind of prudentially wield power within the confines of the rule of law to punish political enemies and reward political friends. And obviously his fight against the Walt Disney Company when it came to the Reedy Creek Improvement District in the Orlando area is kind of a quintessential example of that. So do you think that that kind of combination of kind of a continued emphasis on just getting the government out of our affairs when it comes to economic issues combined with this prudential willingness to kind of wield power to enforce a certain cultural vision, is, is, is that... Is, is, is that kind of Venn diagram overlap, roughly speaking, the path forward, you think? Yeah, look, I, I do think it is, whether it's him or someone else, this blending of, of these cultural fights that actually resonate with a lot of Democrats that the Democratic elite don't appreciate, uh, while also being a really good fiscal steward, particularly through tough economic times, uh, he's been able to pull that off. So the, the voting public will give him a pass on these cultural fights that really play to his base more than anyone else, but do actually strike a chord with some of these moderate and even liberal, but not quite progressive voters on the left and in the center. It, it's a it's a good path forward. The only thing I think Republicans have to be careful about, and it, it's something, and again, I, I just been saying this for a very long time, we see this pattern Going back to the Bush administration, where very often we set precedents that the other side then uses, and then we come back and and expand those precedents in ways that ultimately I, I think there's there's no cutting off and the precedents continue to grow in, in ways that hurt all of us. So DeSantis, I think, has been very he, – he's used – the word prudence comes to mind. He's picked fights, but he's picked them very carefully. And he knew going into the fights, by and large, he had the votes to win the fights, as opposed to just throwing punches where he couldn't win the fight and see ground ultimately to the left. He's been, I don't think he gets enough credit, actually, for picking these fights, knowing he could win them, uh, as opposed to picking a fight that then the left can grab hold of and turn against him. There was no way for them to turn the stuff against him. Even, for example, the so-called badly spun by the left, don't say gay legislation, Turns out a majority of Democrats in Florida also supported the law. And the Democrats at the upper levels totally missed that cultural paradigm shift. And he was able to, to run circles around them on it. No, he really was. And I, prudence does come to mind. I'm happy that you emphasize that word as well. So Eric, we're unfortunately coming to, to a close here. I want to get you out on a totally unrelated kind of quick question. So one thing that I find fascinating about your biography, because I really think of you in so many ways as kind of this voice for Christian conservatism, you've been based in the political South most of your life, but you actually spent a good chunk of your childhood growing up in Dubai, if not mistaken, in the UAE. On last week's show, I talked about how I was just there. I was actually just in the UAE for the first time in my life. I got to kind of see it. How did that impact your your faith and your conservatism, I guess, Greg? How did, how, did it help your strengthen your Christian faith growing up partially in an Islamic country? I, mean, I would be very curious to hear about that. Yeah, you know, it, it, my faith and my conservative convictions, I, it, you know, it, it, people on the left, when they come after me, and it, sometimes I can point out, you know, I've, I've still been to more countries than states. I've been to over 50 countries and maybe half the states. Wow. Uh, every few months when we lived in Dubai, we had to 
uh, leave the country to get our visa renewed and we'd pick a country and go to for a week. And uh, most of my friends going up, I went to an, an international school run by oil companies and had friends from Hong Kong, Sweden, Australia, New Zealand, Pakistan, India. Uh, when I had birthday parties, I couldn't have the Pakistani and the Indian friends of the house together because they'd always fight. And I mean, I, I saw this stuff growing up firsthand, uh, the inner dynamics of the world. And I also saw this. Um, the fifth fleet was parked in Bahrain, but had to come to Dubai to get its ships fixed because at the time it had the only dry docks in the Middle East. And my parents would entertain and host those enlisted sailors. We would organize block parties for them. And everywhere I went in the world, I knew that at the time Ronald Reagan was keeping my family safe. We had uh, Islamic terrorists try to blow up my school more than once. Um, wow. And it was the Americans who kept us safe. My dad's oil platforms got bombed by the Iranians. It was the American Navy that came to the rescue. Um, people in this country have an easy time not having to visualize a world without the United States. Uh, I grew up staying alive because we had the American military that had a profound shape in my worldview. Uh, and it, it affects me to this day that um, I do think that the United States must have a robust uh, global presence and we can't retreat in because where we go, we bring safety and security to free loving people in a way that no other country does. Well, on that very patriotic, inspiring note, Eric, thank you so much for joining us this week. It's been a real treat for me. Thank you for having me. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Thanks so much again to Eric Erickson for dropping by here. You know, it's something I probably have not mentioned on this show since almost a year now ago when this show launched. I really do have Eric to thank for my entire foray into this entire right-of-center world. I can tell you exactly the day and exactly the topic of my first ever blog post for RedState.com back when Eric Erickson was still running Red State. It was August 1st, 2014. I believe I have the date correctly. I had just finished my first year of law school, my my internship clerking for Senator Mike Lee of Utah on his Senate Judiciary Committee staff. And I had pestered uh, I had pestered Senator Lee's chief counsel. I was like, oh my God, I'm, re I'm really itching to get my thoughts out on paper here. And he wisely cautioned me. He said, you know, please wait until the end of, of, your, of your time here, which of course makes sense. So I run downstairs. I run to turn in my Senate badge. I go back to the Airbnb or whatever Airbnb equivalent was going on there in the year 2014. And I immediately fire up my laptop and I fire out this post which you could probably still find on Google today. It was entitled, Why We Fight. And I just remember hitting the send button on that email over to Eric and maybe one other person at Red State. And then it kind of went live that evening and I saw Eric tweet it out. And it was just a really gratifying feeling, honestly. It was just a really gratifying feeling seeing your words out there on the interwebs, on opinions, on the issues of, of, of the day that matter. 
And, you know, you catch a few breaks along the way, and somehow that's turned into a, a profession for me. Well, one other thing that I think back to those days at Red State, and I don't, I don't want to overplay my hand here. It's not like I was one of the earliest people there at Red State. I was not, you know, I was not there with Ben Dominich. You know, I think I barely overlapped probably with Joshua Trevino, some of the kind of the old school Red State bloggers. But one thing that was really interesting just about the Red State blogging model at that time, at least when Eric was overseeing it, was there was really no such thing as a wrong opinion on that side. Now, by definition of the name Red State, we're talking here about kind of a right-of-center blogging and writing community, but people within the right-of-center fold were just openly hashing it out. They were saying, with all due respect to X, I actually believe Y, or with all due respect to this policy prescription, I actually believe that. And you know, in a somewhat kind of interesting way, that almost mirrors what we're trying to do at Newsweek's opinion section, which I've had the great fortune of running now for two and a half, coming on, oh my goodness, coming on three years this May, I guess it will be. And that's not to say that Newsweek opinion is right of center. By definition, it is not. By definition, the mission statement of Newsweek, and you can find this literally in the bottom of our website, is to air all sides. But it's the same idea. It's the same idea of publishing kind of a diverse array of voices and just hashing it out, just hashing it out in good faith, airing all sides of all opinions and ultimately trying to arrive at truth. So that was really just quite a treat for me on a personal note. I, I'm, I'm sure that the listeners enjoyed it as well. Another thing that I thought Eric and I talked about that is probably worth fleshing out just a little bit here, I agree with Eric's swatting down those superficially plausible but ultimately specious comparisons, I think, between Ron DeSantis, if he chooses to run for president in 2024, and the prior botched campaigns of those like Scott Walker and Jeb Bush there. But, you know, Eric is about as well-connected as it comes in kind of the right-of-center punditry space when it comes to all these prospective candidates. Part of that was the fact that he ran those red state gathering annual conferences, some of which I actually attended for years and years and years. And, you know, he and I both know that there are any number of other candidates out there who are really chomping at the bit, probably in no actual rush to declare their candidacies, but would very, very much welcome Donald Trump or Ron DeSantis misstepping you know, obviously, uh, the best case scenario for these guys is Trump actually ultimately drops out of the race. You know, there are so many names out there. Mike Pompeo, Nikki Haley, Mike Pence, Ted Cruz, uh, you know, another old friend of both mine and Eric's there. So it's going to be really interesting on this show as we get closer and closer to the 2024 presidential primaries. Of course, as of right now, there is one candidate declared for that primary and one candidate only, and that candidate is Donald Trump, and it is worth bearing that in mind, it could, because all of this other speculation is ultimately at this current juncture just that speculation, but there's really no one better to speculate about it with than Eric Erickson himself, so hope you, the listener, enjoyed it, and we will be right back with you next week for another episode of The Josh Hammer Show. Once again, if you enjoy this program, please go ahead and subscribe and leave us five stars. Write out your physical review. We need those comments. That's how the algorithms work. So please go ahead and do that. And we will see you next time. Thanks again for tuning in.